and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And this is episode 28, another one of our book club episodes, where our choice for March of this year was Paris Adrift by E.J. Swift. Yep. Before getting into the meat of the episode, we'd like to thank everyone who got in touch to say how much they enjoyed our February episode all about Alia Whiteley's The Loosening Skin. Um, It was a great book to kick off our book club with, and we're glad so many of you enjoyed it and got in touch to say how much you've enjoyed the book as well. Yes, so what we're going to do for this episode is we're going to talk a bit about Paris Adrift. Minory spoilery, but not too spoilery, uh, in case you haven't read the book yet. And then we've got an interview with EJ Swift, who kindly gave us some of her time earlier this week to talk about the book. And after that, we're going to have a final shorter discussion where it gets very spoilery towards the end. So would you like to give our listeners a brief overview of the plot of Paris Adrift? Yes, so it's primarily about a young woman named Hallie from England who decides that she needs to get away from her life, from her family, from everything. So she heads off on a gap year to Paris with no particular plans as to what she's going to do when she gets there. She just wants to shake her life up, really. And when she arrives, she finds herself working in a bar called Millie's with a motley assortment of uh, fellow bartenders and staff who are also working there. Many of whom have wound up there from all over the world, but all of them drawn to Paris for whatever reason. And as she's working in Millie, she starts to discover that there's a strange presence in the keg room uh, underneath this bar which uh, we, the reader, knows from the very beginning is, in fact, an anomaly that opens up cracks in time. And each one of these anomalies, which exist all over the world, they can pair up with one specific individual called the incumbent who can use that anomaly to travel in time. And this is what Hallie starts doing. She starts travelling to Paris in various different eras of the past the the near present and the future. But what Hallie doesn't know, but we the reader know from the very beginning, is that there are other forces at work in shaping her decisions and and what she ends up doing when she encounters this anomaly. Um, There's a sort of prologue to the book where in a couple hundred years' time, there's a a cataclysmic world-ending war happening and a group of people who are all incumbents of various anomalies around the world have decided that they need to stop this war from ever coming to pass. And they send one of their number back to Paris in the early 21st century to try and do something about it by using Hallie and her ability to use her anomaly to affect change without her really realising what it is that she's doing. Yeah, I think that doesn't give too much away. (laughs) Um, What were your thoughts on it overall? I really enjoyed it. I've got to say, once I got a few chapters in, I read huge chunks of it in one go because I didn't want to put it down, which is always a good sign. I really liked that in, in the early stages, although you have this first chapter that takes place in the future... After that, there's actually a good amount of time dedicated just to getting to know Hallie, getting to know the other people who work in the bar. They're all really rich characters. And it, it has that um, that wonderful 
pace of letting you step into this world and really feel that you're in Hallie's world and you know all of these people before any crazy time-travelling business starts happening. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I really love this book. For me, the standout features of it, I think, were it's got a tremendous amount of atmosphere and world building. It has that sense of being a real science fiction novel, but it's very personal. Mm. And I and I like the idea that by framing the story, by having uh, the prologue you describe, it's really interesting to have such massive stakes established at the very beginning. But it then zooms in on a very human story. And it has, you know, normal people who are unaware of the implications of their actions, I suppose, and understanding how those lives uh, continue are in some ways affected by the time travel events that take place, but maybe never understanding until later on in the novel what the implications are. I just like the idea that, you know, sometimes there are really big things happening and it's ordinary people who are unwittingly drawn into it. And there's no sense of people who are necessarily primed and ready to take part in these big events. They're merely thrown into them and they have to sort of deal with them in the best way they can. And for that reason, I think it's really clever that they allow the character of Hallie to experience these time jumps, etc., without letting her know what it's all about in order just to see if they can very subtly nudge events in the past in order to uh, affect what's going to happen in the future. And I think one aspect of world building that I really liked in Paris Adrift is the fact that I think very often, especially in in genre novels, it's very easy to um, identify really good world building when things are really fantastical, you know, in a strange world, in a strange environment where nothing is like what we're used to. I think it's really clever to be able to, to represent that on the page. What I like here is that the world building is actually establishing an environment that is actually relatively familiar to us mm. and it's so beautifully captured um, in terms of you know the ambience you feel in Millie's for example the the interactions uh, between characters in different eras all these different aspects of being in Paris and seeing the people and uh, the city itself change over time as well I think there's a there's a lot to be said for uh, the quality of the writing and the and the character of Paris itself in the novel as well. I really like the way that that's emphasised a lot throughout the novel. Yeah, I really felt that as the book goes on, you you almost feel like you've been in Millie's. Mm. You know, that the, the smoky, sweaty, slightly warm and sticky atmosphere <laughs> of, of those kind of bars, but where the, the air is just filled with noise. Mm. And it's it's some really wonderful descriptions that are in there. And the way that Hallie and most of the people that she gets to know at Millie's are on the night shift. And the effect that this has on people where you almost start to feel like you're not quite living in the same world as everybody Mm. else. Because you're seeing everyday life from the wrong way around. You're seeing the sunrise from the wrong way around. You're living in the dark, particularly in the winter where you just never see the sunlight. And your end of the night drinks are happening in the small hours of the morning when other people are getting up. And and just the way that it captures that sense of strangeness of um, 
slightly feeling disconnected from reality mm. when you're doing that. It, it reminded me in, you know, in some ways of my old student waitressing days <laughs> where, you know, you'd be working until like four in the morning and you'd, you'd come home and feel like things were out of joint slightly. Um, and if you got too used to it, maybe they would be out of joint forever. Yeah, it just feels to me like the sense of disorientation that you can find when your body clock is switched like that fits really well with the way that Hallie at least initially interprets these time jumps and things she sees. It's almost like she worries at first that she's too tired or too drunk to have seen what <laughs> you know what she thinks she's seen or experienced you know these things. And I like the fact that it it mixes and captures that you know that sense of slight otherworldliness that exists when your timings are switched over and then in this case you throw in the added complexity of of being a time traveler as well Mm. albeit unknowingly at the beginning and as well as the the really nice change in tone between how each of the different eras in Paris are established uh, the way they're written the way it feels I also like the sometimes subtle but very evident shifts in in tone that take place during aspects of the story certainly bits set in the past have a have a slight frivolity to them but occasionally there are elements of darkness creeping in i think the story that takes place involving a character called rachel that we might come on to later on i think there's a there's a genuine darkness that is in that that whole section of the book which is actually quite jarring and it's jarring i think in the sense that all the events we've seen hallie take um, experience are uh, related to the nature of the environment she's in and that all of a sudden she's thrown into the middle of occupied France in the middle of World War II and there's a real tonal shift and there's a sense also that Hallie is forced to confront a much darker experience and I like the way that, that that is handled as well it just feels like it's not a it's not a monotone novel I mean it's a it's a really fun and easy to read book but there are lots of really nice tonal shifts that capture the different events in different eras and the events that take place in each of those sections of the book as well. And another thing I really liked are the descriptions that E.J. Swift uses throughout the book, sometimes for very big events, but sometimes really minor things that in a few short sentences can establish a huge amount of atmosphere in a, in a certain environment or indeed tell you a huge amount about a character or, or their experiences without going into long extended descriptions. Yeah, I think certainly all of the characters that you meet who work at Millie's, um, some of them are more prominent in the story than others as it goes on, but everyone you feel like you really know something about them. You, know, you almost feel like you've been hanging out with them all night <laughs> and you've you've started to scratch the surface of some of their personalities whereas others you get to know really well just like any kind of group of friends or colleagues that you get thrown in with but every character has something about them that is very memorable and and makes them sort of unique within the story yeah and they're all bound together in their in their job Mm -hmm. uh, at Millie's but what I like is that there are beautiful moments uh, where it's very clear that you have these kind of very clumsy interactions that take Mm. place between people who don't know each other very well there's also that feeling that in this environment all these characters have been thrown together and there's a lot of camaraderie that you can build up in that environment where 
everyone is in Paris for very different reasons. They've all found themselves in the same similar job and they're all teaching each other that there is a there is kind of a hierarchy which exists there, which is probably naturally formed as well. But I like the fact that this is still a story about a group of strangers who have found themselves drawn together. And then to add on top of that, it's not just that Hallie feels alien to, to Paris and, and being sort of in a state of trying to find herself and what her meaning is, I suppose, on the gap year. It's the fact that she also has to deal with this time travel issue, which has <laughs> arisen as well. And I like the fact that, you know, she's uncomfortable with it. She doesn't know what to do with it. And the fact that she doesn't keep it a secret, I think, is nice. Mm. I think it goes back to what we were saying about how she's unclear about whether these things are real or not, whether she's just hallucinating them. I like the fact that she does confide in people. And it's interesting that other characters don't spend the whole novel sort of trying to work out what's up with Hallie. It's the fact that some of them do find out about what's going on and they do buy into it. Um, And it's almost like they've all reached a point where there's a sense of trust that you have to place in in those who you're with. Um, I think that adds to that sense of, of closeness that we feel between these characters. I think all through the book there's a really wonderful use of clothing and descriptions of clothing in order to give you a, you know, a window into someone's life, but it's never overworked. You know, it, it's as relevant in the present time as it is when Hallie goes back and forward in time and, and you see the way that people are living. Because you, you'll always have an idea in your head as to what would you know, late 19th century clothes have been like. But there's just all these kind of wonderful touches of it. So, I mean, for example, you've got Hallie and her DMs that she wears a lot in the beginning. And one of them has the Pikachu sticker on the heel uh, because her brother put it there. And, you know, she, she has this connection to them that causes her to want to hold on to them, even when she's shifting around in time. And And what I particularly love is the repetition of the use of green in relation to the chronometrist so the chronometrist is uh how would you describe her she's she's she has become a, a disembodied person who is almost sort of no longer a person she's someone who has traveled through her anomaly so much that she has ceased to have corporeal form yeah for for Twin Peaks fans, she's basically the Philip Jeffries of this story. <laughs> yeah, she is. She is. Um, but, but she has attained the ability to pass through other people's anomalies and can move around as she pleases, which no other incumbent is able to do. And she, she also serves as a warning because you, you, you see the possibility of the, the you know a character like Hallie who we really love potentially becoming like that if she gets too addicted to the anomaly because it it does start to get addictive after a while of of being part of it the anomalies have their own kind of sentience in a way but that the chronometrist she's existed for so long that her view of the world is very detached as opposed from from other people she's very capricious and doesn't necessarily have as much empathy perhaps <laughs> for what she's doing she's going to do what she, what she needs to do 
but because she inhabits other people's bodies in order to communicate so she she isn't immediately recognizable as to who she is but there's this wonderful use of the color green in the clothing of the people that she inhabits and I, to to act as a visual signifier to the reader that this is her but also I, I wonder if there's some reason why she is picking people who are wearing green or inhabiting people and then going off and finding something green to wear is it something in her nature that she finds this is as a, a flourish that she likes so it, even though it's really difficult to get a handle on the chronometrist as a person because she's almost not really any longer a person that feels like a very human thing that she still enjoys doing so in terms of some of the themes that i thought were really well handled um, although it's a science fiction novel i think it it does deal with this universal theme which is uh, the idea of you know young people trying to find their place in the world and that restlessness that they have when they have this desire to want to explore and to change the world i think that's really beautifully handled because there's that it well i think the characters move from being in a place where they're all talk to ultimately i think a lot of the arcs of all of the characters who are part of millie's staff move to a feeling of needing to to act on this um urge to to actually go out in the world and change things. I like the fact that all these characters over the course of the novel, I think do kind of not grow up. I think that's quite patronizing in that sense, but they, they do start to find themselves in some way and find some sense of, of being, get some meaning in their lives, whether it's through the things that they're involved in, or sometimes it's the observation of their friends and colleagues and going, you know, maybe I need to make a change as well and move on. And I think there are, it just, it really captures that, that kind of sense of what happens at, at that age. I mean, for some, it's a gap year. For others, it can be any time sort of plus minus five years, I suppose, five, 10 mm. years. It's that, it's that sense of wandering and, and looking for, for meaning. And I think I like the fact that some people get it in arguably quite traditional ways in the novel. I say traditional because there's also the more extraordinary resolutions that take place when your meaning comes from an experience involving time travel and shaping the past and things like that. Yes, there's also the recurring theme of people being far from home and far from their family, some of them because they want to be far away from their family and, and others not necessarily wanting to be you know, so far from their life. So I mean, the obvious examples would be Leon, who is the person from the, the future that we see in that first chapter who has been sent back to try and steer Hallie in the right direction. In fact, he's the one who encourages her to get the job in Millie's in the first place. And he is, he is far from home in the sense of being hundreds of years out of time, and yet he's still in France, which is where he's from. So it must be very odd for him to be constantly living in the past, and constantly living in the way that we then witness Hallie feeling when she goes back um, to eras of the past. Um, so he's sort of there out of duty, potentially unsure about if or when he's going to be able to return or what he would be returning to. And then you've got someone like Gabriella, 
who convinces herself that she's sort of stuck in in Paris for various reasons but she's from Colombia and she's sort of grown up with tremendous responsibility towards people in her family and at some point it seems like she's just decided that she has to do something for herself and just go off and and be someone else and so she's she's miles from home and miles away from the people that she had borne this tremendous responsibility for for so long when she was you know younger than someone would normally be in order to bear that kind of responsibility yeah i think it's nice that a lot of characters are in a situation where they go from feeling that decisions are sort of forced upon them it's like an external thing to wanting to actually gain some agency in their own life now how they choose to do that is quite interesting with all the different characters but i like the fact that they all ultimately have to confront themselves a little bit and work out you know as much as you grow close to this family of of lost souls who are all in this bar there's a sense of nothing lasting forever mm. and that you've you've ultimately got to move on in some way and people do that differently but i like the fact that even by the end of the book and it's not really a spoiler um they all do it in in different ways i think or you can at least see the trajectories that they might be on but as in real life you never need to know or indeed find out in the book the exact details of what happens to everyone afterwards you know, and you realise this is almost a, a self-contained era in somebody's life when everyone can be somebody else when they're away and find out who they really are and then decide what to do with themselves afterwards. You could, you know, you can be away from everything that you think is an external prison to you, I suppose. And then once you have this freedom and you're on your own, all the things you've always wanted, what do you do with it? And I like I like the questions that that throws up for a lot of the characters. I think it's the character of uh, Angel who, sort of towards the end, when what they exhibit shock when he says that he's going to leave Millie. Mm. He's one of the day crew, um, and is sort of you know one of the most well known people working at the bar, and has been there for years. And when he says that he's you know moving on, and there's almost disbelief among the you know the the, the gang who work there, and he says, well. You know, no, no one can stay here forever. Mm. At some point, we've got to move on. And and then they all wonder who's going to get promoted from the night shift to the day shift. <laughs> but that in itself is a form of moving on into mm. a more normal life and away from this weird twilight existence that the night crew have in their lives day in, day out. And so a large chunk of uh, the novel is set in contemporary Paris. But because all the people who work at Millie's are quite international, there is a... There's a lot of discussion about about current events mm. on a global scale. Now, I think it's kind of interesting that this is included in such depth and with such specific references. Um, I suppose it, in a way, I would argue that, you know, 50 years from now, it's going to date the novel. On the other hand, I would say the alternative is probably that you'd have to make up some allegorical representation of what's going on currently in global politics and climate change and the rise of fascism all these aspects you could you could discuss using you know fake examples in the world of Paris Adrift but I think it's a very brave move to make very direct references to what's going on in the world 
because I think it helps you relate to to what these characters are experiencing. It almost makes the issues that they discuss, and there is that kind of slightly studenty thing of of you know young people discussing big issues, mm. which is not to be taken lightly. I think it's it's that sense of awareness of the world, and I think you wouldn't be able to do that if you made up the facts. Yeah. I think it's nice that they make references to things, and the fact that I think it is Angel, isn't it? Who who towards the end he decides to you know to go and work abroad. I think. And kind of affect some some social change based on, you know, what his views are. And I like the fact that he's actually taking action on something rather than just talking about things. Yeah, there's there's that funny conversation that they have at one point in the bar. It's about half a dozen or so of them where they're kind of half jokingly arguing about whose country is the most screwed up right now. <laughs> and you know, it, it it delves into so many of these contemporary issues, but also in a in, in exactly the kind of way that you do when you're that kind of student age mm. and you see all these problems but you don't necessarily know how you can affect any kind of change mm. to actually do something about any of them but i think it's important that it's something which all the characters are aware of and concerned about it's not their fault that they can't do anything about it and i think there's that sense sometimes that it's very easy obviously to uh to point out these problems, but what are you going to do about it? But I like the fact that these characters are kind of also aware that these are huge problems. And I like the fact that there are problems happening on a contemporary global scale in Paris in 2018 in the novel. But that is also um, reflected in the fact that the novel begins with people traveling from the future to avoid an you know an apocalypse so mm -hmm. there's almost a sense of you know people being aware of these problems now is this merely the road that the world is going to go down in in the next few hundred years if people don't do anything and don't worry about these problems so i like the fact that it it uh, it holds a mirror up to um current problems and is almost making a case for us not ignoring them because the fate of the world is ultimately um, hanging in the balance in the world of the novel. Mm. And I, I like the fact that one, one of the recurring themes in, in the sort of political movement that is described as growing in contemporary France at that time is um, this idea of not necessarily being powerful enough to make enormous changes yourself, but being able to do something good yourself and those things can snowball into something. And, and I think that's reflected in some ways in what Halley actually does in the past because the, the section that set during World War II, she effectively, she helps one person, mm. just one person. And that does have an effect on the future. She couldn't possibly have known that it would. And if she did, she couldn't possibly have known what that effect would snowball into but she does help that one person even though she doesn't have to and it's the idea that there is something that you can do even if you can't change the world save the world whatever wave a magic wand and make it exactly as, as you would want it to be so i think that's a good place to pause for a moment and bring you the interview that we did recently with ej swift talking about paris adrift and indeed some of her other work as well 
and when we come back afterwards we're going to talk a bit more about the time travel aspects of the book and it's going to get a lot more spoilery so uh beware So we're delighted to be joined this time by EJ Swift, author of Paris Adrift. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, that's quite right. Thanks so much for joining us. So how would you describe Paris Adrift to someone who uh, is thinking of picking up the book for the first time? Um, I would actually describe it as a coming of age story, um, but with time travel, bartenders and Paris thrown into the mix <laughs> is the shorthand. Every time travel novel has to have its own rules as to how time travel works within the universe. Uh, so how did you go about putting together the, the practicalities of how time travel would work in Paris Adrift? And are there any rules that you threw in there in order to make life harder for the characters and what they're trying to do? I suppose I, I was kind of thinking about, um, in terms of thinking about how the time travel would work, I was obviously really aware that there's so many amazing um, time travel books out there already. Um, so many different kind of methodologies and, and ways that that functions. So I wanted to try and do something that was a little bit different. Um, I've always been really interested in in nature and the natural world and like kind of symbiotic partnerships. And that kind of came to leading to me to this idea of coming up with the um, anomalies, which are the kind of uh, method through which my protagonist, Hallie, uh, travels. Um, so the anomalies kind of function, and I don't think this is giving anything away because it's kind of explained in the very first um, chapter of the book, um, but they essentially have this sort of slightly parasitic relationship with their, um, what I describe as the incumbent. Um, so each anomaly is a sort of portal in its own right. There's several of them all over the world, um, but they're kind of semi-sentient. They um, have some kind of agency of their own. Um, but they're also kind of rooted in one place and each one of them kind of corresponds to a um, incumbent or traveller, um, which in my case is, is the character of Halley is kind of the link for the portal in it that's, in, that's uh, located in Paris. Um, so that was kind of my idea for how the actual time travel would work. I wanted it to sort of have this element of peril. So for Halley, she finds time travel as kind of almost a way of reinventing herself for her own... Um, experience of the world and trying to find her place in the world um, but every time she travels it kind of takes a little something away from her um, and the ultimate kind of end game of the anomaly is it kind of it, it sort of leeches everything out of the traveler until you end up in this sort of disembodied consciousness which is which is one of the characters again who comes up in the first chapter of the novel um, so there's there's that kind of um, peril element for Hallie there um, in terms of thinking about the rules I guess I had some ground rules so Hallie can change history so that was one of the things that she does have that capacity to to change events and and re um change the present she can only go forward and back in time so you kind of don't hop around between different time periods so each time she goes somewhere in history or in the future um she will come back to the exact point where she she left so there was that was a kind of ground rule and then I suppose the other element is the sort of the capricious nature of the anomaly. Um, so you never know how long you're going to be out of time for. Um, so that, I guess, again, mess with, messes with her head in the sense that suddenly I'm here and now I'm here. How long will I be here? It could be five minutes. It could be five months. Um, so those are, the, I guess, the rules I kind of established um, in thinking about how it actually worked on a, yeah, on a pragmatic level, I guess. 
And you described it as a coming-of-age story, and um, the character of Hallie, she seems to in some way represent that period that I think most people go through in their lives, when they're sort of just becoming an adult and they're trying to figure out who they are, where they belong, and you feel like you're drifting in the world a little bit, looking for your place. So was that there from the very beginning when you were developing this story of, you know, shifting timelines of it, of almost a shifting person as well? Yeah, I think that was kind of what led me to the idea of the anomalies in a way, because the character of Hallie was very much the uh, the kind of stimulus for the story. Um, you know, I had this idea of this this young woman. Um, you know, she's she's working out who she wants to be. Um, she has you know a slightly um, complex family relationships. Um, she doesn't really get on with any of her family. Um, she basically kind of runs away from home, essentially. Um, I mean, she's a, she's kind of midway through university, so she's not a teenager, but um, she is she's running away from her past life in the hope of finding something new, something different. And um, yeah, so I think her vulnerabilities as a character um, that was kind of one of the reasons for going with the anomalies as the idea of time travel, because because with each travel, she's kind of risking not only the kind of practical um, perils that you might experience through um, going to a different time period, but she's also, in a sense, like kind of risking her own sanity, her own sense of self at the same time uh, through the way the anomaly, the anomaly kind of sort of takes something away from you. There are different sections of the book, obviously it's a time travel novel, which are set in different historical eras. Yeah. So how do you go about uh, researching all these different eras? Um, how do you sort of bring... Paris itself to life but through the lens of all these different specific time periods and especially then to implement the feeling that not only are you seeing things through Hallie's perspective but her perspective on things is also changing as she does more of these jumps as well. Yeah um, well I guess there was a there was a lot of just kind of book-based research as a starting point. Um, I mean I'd actually lived in Paris myself for a, about a year and a half so I, I kind of had a a sense at least of like the kind of location some of the locations I wanted to introduce um and the kind of area so I had a sort of a, a geographical familiarity to a certain extent as, as much as you can so that was that was a sort of starting point then there was a lot of research into the kind of specific time periods um I actually found Pinterest really useful, especially for the 20th century stuff. There's just some great photography out there. And I actually got some little details that ended up in the book um, from photographs, which was was really cool. So that was kind of my two, I guess, main areas of research. Yeah, and I guess reading, there was some, there was a couple of things that I found that were actually uh, texts from the time, um, particularly in the sort of... Uh, I'm thinking 18th, 19th century um, sort of era um, where I could get a little bit more of the of the voice and a sense of what people were kind of feeling at, at that time. How does that compare with then writing the sections in the future where you you can bring a lot more of your imagination into play as to what the future might turn out to be? Um, I don't know which I would say I, I maybe enjoyed more because... I think they both have their own challenges. I think of the past, you just feel that level of responsibility to try and get things as accurate as you can. And especially, you know, depending on the period of history, you might be dealing with, you know, with terrible atrocities and, and you really feel the duty to try and try and get the detail right. But you're also at the same time for time travel novel where your character can change time. You're intrinsically messing with the timeline as well. So... I think with the future, it's it's freer in some ways in the sense that you have you don't have that kind of obligation. Um, 
and you're you just have more more stuff to play with i suppose in a sense but then you've also got the kind of challenge of world building of trying to create something that feels still plausible for the reader so yeah i think i think generally i found it easier to write the future um with this one but again i guess having it through the lens of hallie's eyes meant that i didn't completely have to get into that kind of mindset of the past at the same time the previous trilogy of books that you wrote were also entirely set in the future a sort of post-apocalyptic future um that was the osiris trilogy yeah and with this one it it begins with that first chapter which is in the future and we and we see some kind of terrible calamity unfolding did it feel different writing a story where characters are actively trying to prevent something terrible from coming about versus a story set after a terrible event where people are just having to deal with it and come to terms with what's happened yeah definitely I mean I guess the motivation of the characters is so different in that sense because with um with Hallie in Paris Adrift um she has uh you know some forewarning or some of the characters have some forewarning of, of what what the stakes are I suppose so there's that much more kind of personal responsibility um desire to try and change things for the better and at the same time awareness of her own limitations as, as one person how much can one individual really affect this kind of change um, so I think that was a very different sensibility to writing something that was was set in in the future, in a future where those characters much more inhabit that world. There, I guess, in the Osiris books, um, they're just trying to get on with things and trying to make the best of, of quite a changed world. Yeah, definitely a different feeling. Is it slightly more optimistic or pessimistic, do you think, to, to be imagining um, a future that could be changed for the better or for the worse versus a, f- a future that's already happened? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there is that, that sense that you have the potential to change. I think, I think it's a sort of, um, how to describe it, I, I suppose you've got that dual sense of, you know, you, you could do something that really helps and actually, you know, you could, you could save the world, but you could also really screw things up terribly badly and you've got the kind of, well, if I do this and this positive thing happens, does actually have a knock-on effect down the line and actually something else terrible, um, unanticipated. So I think for, for Hallie, it's a character who was, um, you know, quite a, a, a sort of vulnerable character to start with. Um, that, again, kind of plays on her mind a lot in terms of her own her own responsibility and, and what is what is the right action, what, what is the best course to take. But it's quite interesting thinking about how you present the future in any kind of literature. And I think my thinking's kind of evolving on that quite a lot. I've written quite a lot of post-apocalyptic novels so far, um, but I'm trying to move away from that a little bit in um, what I'm working on at the moment. There are sections of the novel set in uh, contemporary Paris. I'm thinking about some of the conversations between sort of all the bar staff at Millie's, which, which very much address sort of the current state of the world and the and current mm-hmm. politics was that always there in light of where we project the story might go with this ultimate potential sort of world ending event which is foreshadowed at the beginning of the novel or was it something which you could have discussed without being uh, so explicit about about the current state of the world i think i could have made it more ambiguous i guess and more broad brush mm-hmm. um 
But I think the more I got into the novel, because of the kind of periods in the past I was looking at, I just felt like I had to make that connection with the present in some ways. So um, with the kind of the themes that were coming up out of it, um, it just it, it felt almost like if I didn't address it, it would be running away from it, even though I knew that it would completely date the book at the same time. And obviously, in you know, in two years time, we may look back and think, well, that's completely um, you know, moved on so far from from the themes it's discussing. But I, I kind of felt almost an obligation to have those conversations. And, and also, you know, with with kind of Hallie's, um, you know, depicting this this young woman who's sort of of that age and, and is is kind of you know, passionately engaged with the world. I kind of felt like those are the conversations people people would be having. And yeah, so that it, it was kind of a conscious decision and, and it did make me a little bit nervous at the same time because of it being so specific, but I felt I had to go with it. So what we also wanted to ask about was actually the the cover to the novel as well. So it has a really yes. cool cover by uh, yeah. Joey Hi-Fi, which has been nominated for a BSFA award. Um, what's the process like for putting together a, um, a cover with an artist so in this case did you have much input on it or was it one where you had a choice over sort of the direction but not the you know the artistic choices that he would make and then you'd work together on it um in this case it was an absolute dream because i i had more input than i would normally have so with my um osiris books and this is probably um just you know the difference in in, in publishers perhaps with my osiris books um it was pretty much you know here's the cover um, this is it and I was completely happy with that because I, I loved all of my Osiris covers and I was really you know thrilled with them all um, but it was really lovely to have some input on this so um, the publishers uh, Rebellion actually asked me if there was any cover artists that I particularly liked and um, Joey Hi-Fi was like you know I named two and Joey Hi-Fi was one of them um, and they were like great we've worked with him before he's fantastic obviously um, so I had a bit of an email exchange uh, with Joe Hi-Fi, pretty much was happy to leave him to his own devices, but the only thing I really said was, I don't want kind of the Eiffel Tower on the front, I don't want a kind of classic parent skyline, um, and I'd like something with some movement in it, um, and I kind of made a Pinterest board of like covers that I particularly liked, and, and I've sent that to him, and then he was like, great, I'll go with it, here's some motifs that I've picked out from the book, and I was like, great, here's a few more. And then that came back and I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. So yeah, I couldn't have been happier with the cover, to be honest. And I, I'm really keeping my fingers crossed for that BSFA award for him. <laughs> if you found your own anomaly in the world, is there any particular time and place in history that you would like to visit? Such a hard question. <laughs> um, I think... Weirdly, I think partly because of what I'm working on at the moment, I'd I'd love to go back to um, kind of the early Holocene, so actually kind of before the spread of agriculture and civilization, just to like see the natural world as as we kind of know it today in kind of as close to I guess pristine as you can you know actually be. Um, but I you know I'd quite like to be protected at the same time, so there weren't like tigers running around <laughs> <laughs> leaping on me from above. Um, but I'd I'd love to see that sort of you know natural abundance as as it was slightly closer to home in terms of Paris I've, I've always been intrigued by the court of Versailles that would be very cool um to see but the other place I was thinking about kind of in advance of that was um that I'd be really love to to go back to is the the city of Petra in Jordan just like looking at the kind of architectural ruins now and imagining what that must have been like I think that would be absolutely fascinating so what is the book that you're working on now if you can tell us um, yeah, no, that, that's, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, so 
I'm working on something set on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. So I'm kind of going back to some of the questions around climate change um, that I was looking at in the Osiris books, but much more explicitly. So it's, um, it's a book with three women um, across three centuries. So it's similar to Paris Adrift in that there's a past, present and future section, but it's, it's from the point of view of those characters in the past and in, in the future. And it's sort of looking at the, just on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution, European colonisation of Australia period, it's looking at kind of present day and uh, the work that's going on to try and save corals from um, the bleaching crisis and in the future. Yeah, in the future, I, I'm trying to go for a sort of somewhere between optimism, but also acknowledging the damage that's already been done. So that, that's been quite an interesting um journey to go on with that. So how did you first get into actually writing speculative fiction? Um, kind of by accident, to be honest. Um, I didn't really think of Osiris as a sci-fi book, especially when I wrote it. I mean, I read a lot of um, fantasy when I was younger. I'm, I was thinking like two of, so probably two of the books that I'd say were hugely influential on me when I was younger was um, Northern Lights by Philip Pullman and uh, Noughts and Crosses by Mallory Blackman, um, both of which were just really formative for me. But then as an adult, I didn't really read that much genre fiction. I kind of came to genre via sort of crossover writers, I guess, like the kind of Margaret Atwood, Kazuo Shiguro, that kind of thing. Um, and then after kind of writing Osiris and finding out that it was sci-fi... <laughs> Um, I ended up kind of getting a lot more engaged with, with genre fiction as an adult. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird one. But I think that's just, as a writer, I, don't, I guess I don't really think about the books I'm writing as a genre. But obviously, from a publishing point of view, you need to package those up in a certain way. But I'm always quite interested in stuff that kind of sits at the edges of those kind of genre boundaries, I guess. It's kind of the field I like to sort of try and work in and, and read in as well. So are there any other authors or particular novels working in that same kind of boundary area that you'd recommend? Um, oh, yeah, lots. Um, hmm, where do I start? <laughs> um, I loved uh, I love Sarah Hall's work. Um, the Carhollin Army is, is a favourite. And I also really enjoyed uh, Louisa Hall's uh, Speak, which was sort of uh, looking at AI again through different periods in time and through different voices. I think stuff I've read more recently, I loved Elysium by Jennifer Marie Brissett and The Country of Ice Cream Star by Sandra Newman. Is all I, I read a lot of dystopia, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. If people want to find out more about Paris Adrift or any of your other work, uh, where can they find you on social media? Uh, so I'm on Twitter um, with the camp handle at Katamaroon um, and on Instagram as well. And um, I have a Facebook page. Um, my website is just uh, ejswift.co.uk. So all the social media links are on there. Thanks again for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And good luck with the current work in progress. Thanks very much. So we'd like to thank EJ Swift once again for joining us. It was wonderful being able to talk to her about Paris Adrift. And I'm really interested in this this book that she's writing at the moment, again, spread across three timelines um, and the Great Barrier Reef. I think that's going to be really good.
So I think we're about to get into uh, spoiler territory. Yeah. The jumping off point for that is really the time travel aspect in mm-hmm. in the novel. So so what are your thoughts on on the use of time travel in Paris Adrift? So there's the, these sort of common tropes within time travel in sci-fi where there's almost a, a, a sort of closed loop um, effect of somebody going back and changing something and then it causes the thing to happen that is that they were trying to avoid. Or it causes something to happen that they realised they already knew had happened. And I, I like the fact that it continually averts this. So, for example, there's um, one very small detail that I loved is Pikachu, <laughs> right? So she she, go, she goes back to the late 19th century and she accidentally leaves her DMs with the real life Millie, who she meets back there. And they've got a picture of Pikachu on the heel. And at some point when Hallie's not around, Millie gives the sticker to Steinland, the artist who did the famous... Le Chat Noir poster. And the result of this is that Steinland does another famous image called the Yellow Devil. <laughs> and the direct knock-on effect of this is that in the future, there's no Pokemon. Which, at that point in the book, I was like, well, you've gone too far now. <laughs> you can you can mess with time a lot, but don't take away my Pokemon. Um, but I I love that detail because in in... in the way that these tropes normally go, you know, I'm thinking like Doctor Who or Quantum Leap and things like that, is they inadvertently give somebody an idea and then you realise it's the famous thing that you already remember. Like that episode of Quantum Leap with all the horror story tropes and then you find out that the kid is Stephen King mm. at the end. Um, or the Doctor Who episode with Shakespeare where they keep inadvertently giving him his own lines to put in his play. Um, but But this effectively undercuts it and says no actually that you know it, the sticker doesn't end up in the hands of the person who's going to invent pokemon it just stops pokemon from <laughs> being invented altogether and and these wonderful little touches which then you, you never know if it's going to be a small thing like that not that it's a small thing to me to remove pokemon but the the enormous changes the enormous ripple effects that are also happening that she doesn't necessarily realize are going to happen so for example the creation of the Moulin Vert itself mm. and what that comes to symbolise in this new timeline that she's created. Yeah, and going back to what you were saying earlier, I think the section of the book uh, with Rachel, I think is a really good example of, again, her intervening in something which she does out of a, you know, out of a sense of wanting to do the right thing and wanting to help Rachel. It's interesting that she's not driven by knowing what the implications of her actions are in how they're going to ultimately undo a significant amount of what's going to be done in the future. I just like the fact that for somebody who initially is quite worried about changing things in the past and the potential butterfly effect that might spring from these actions, I like the fact that Hallie knows that she, outside of the whole time travel thing, just has to do the right thing. She has to help Rachel. She has to help her be reunited with her cello and and get out of occupied France. And I like the fact that, you know, it's a decision that she does for no other reason than the sense of doing the right thing and mm. wanting to help this young girl. And ultimately that is the 
well, one of the main things which uh, Leon is hoping actually is carried out in the past in order to um, affect the future that he himself is, is fleeing from. Yeah, and, and again, I like the fact that this it subverts the trope of going back in time and saving someone's life, which in a less original story would be a very Terminator kind of <laughs> thing, you know, where you, you go back to save the life of um, a young woman and then it's going to turn out that her descendant is going to say, you know, lead the resistance or become a politician who saves the world or whatever. Mm. But in this instance, I, I, I love the fact that it wasn't, saving Rachel per se but it was saving her ambitions and her hopes for her own future mm. through the saving of the cello mm. because in the original timeline she did survive but one of her distant descendants ends up being a monster but in this new timeline she survives with her cello and goes off and has some of the life that she had wanted for herself as a cellist and so decides not to get married not to have kids and in that way, it, it cuts that timeline off. And it's just the fact that they didn't, you know, the, the, the people doing this, they didn't decide, oh, we're, gonna, we're just going to go back and murder the person who is yeah. going to do this. They, it's actually a way of doing it that brings about a, a better life for the person that they, whose life they were interacting with. Yeah, and it's that idea again that very small changes can have quite fundamental effects but they are not necessarily events where you blunder in and, and change the course of history in an obvious way you you give somebody their their hopes and dreams back and I think that's quite similar to what Hallie is looking for as well that urge to find her sense of self I think is 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 tied very much to the story of reuniting Rachel with her cello and giving her the opportunity to you know not only become the cellist that she needs to be but make decisions that I think affect her in a very subtle way in the global sense but are, but are intrinsic to to her as a person important to her and a byproduct of that is that it happens to subvert a very dark future with one of her <laughs> potential offspring. Yeah, and, and I think also what the cello represents to Rachel is, is it's not just a cello, it represents her family's faith in her mm. and love for her and their desire to you know move mountains to make sure that she had these opportunities to become a cellist. You know, moving hundreds of miles and, you know, the, the very symbolic act of spending all the money that they were saving for her wedding on her cello instead. Mm. Um, because that that's her true passion and so I you know to Rachel what what would have been the loss of the cello would have represented a, a sort of severing of that relationship with her parents when they're murdered during the occupation it's it's giving her her hopes and dreams back but also giving her that connection to a family who loved her and believed in her because to Hallie I think she's felt like she never had that mm. Um, you know, the, the reason that she's decided that she's going to not run away from home, really, because she's like 19, 20, mm. um, but kind of run away from mm. home, um, change her bank account, ditch her SIM card, sever all of her ties with her family is because she feels like they never supported her or, or really particularly cared about her all that much. 
and she never had what the cello symbolises from her family. Yeah, and the fact that a few chapters before, when we first meet Hallie, you know, she's the person who is, you know, absorbed in the life of being young and on her own in Paris and trying to, you know, live a fun, exciting life working in a bar. With great descriptions of her being sort of perpetually hung over <laughs> and throwing up and things like that. And all of a sudden she's put in a, in a moment of, of maturity and she steps up. And I think you're right. It's it's the fact that she sees in Rachel what the connection to the cello means as well. And subconsciously, I think it has a lot of relevance for Hallie's journey as well and how she feels you can make sometimes very symbolic changes in your life, but ones that will have huge repercussions. But not everything has to be world-changing like this mm -hmm. event. They can be things that just maybe give you different opportunities or, or, or steer your direction a little bit. And I think, you know, she goes from being somebody who's relatively directionless to ultimately being somebody who has, not necessarily forever, but in the short term, a feel and a sense for what she wants to do next and what her purpose might be. And any sense of answer to questions like that, I think, is, is really well handled in the story. Towards the end of the book, we get more glimpses into the future and trips into the future. So first we get a description of Leon's trip to, I think, is it 2070? Mm. Where essentially part of Paris is now the epicentre of this regressive fascist state. And another part of Paris has been utterly destroyed and is still just barely inhabited by what is effectively the resistance. Um, and this is in the timeline that starts to exist after they've already made these changes in the past. So this apocalypse that was happening in 200 years, that's apparently been averted. But now this new terrible thing has <laughs> happened instead. And it's connected to the uh, apparent assassination of a politician who in 2017, in, in Halley's time in Millie's, is a, a sort of a young politician trying to start a new movement, but who years from then um, runs for president and is assassinated, but it's staged to look like she, she killed her family and herself. And then the Front National get in instead. And then that leads to the creation of this, this fascist state. And Leon wants to do something about it. And ultimately, Halley wants to do something about it because... Paris is is home to all these people and, and it might not necessarily be a world-ending cataclysm like it was before but it's still going to utterly destroy so many people so they decide that they have to do something about it by moving into the future and using their foreknowledge of what's going to happen to avert a future event rather than a past one and once they have well, seemingly succeeded. Certainly they've saved the life of um, of this politician on the night that, that she was going to be killed in the timeline that they were aware of. You then have the, the moment where Leon admits that he's not going to be able to go back because he's starting to grow thin like the chronometrist and how he's going to have to go back without him. So Hallie returns to 2017, to her life, and 
decides that she she mustn't travel anymore because otherwise she knows what her fate is going to be because she's seen it happen to other people and so as a result she doesn't get to find out what new future it is that they've created for themselves i mean leon will see the immediate aftermath of it as he lives out his life in the sort of mid to late 21st century hallie might get to see the tail end of it when she's older but neither of them will ever know the long-term repercussions of the changes that they've made to what is the past for one of them and the future for the other now. And I, I, I love this sense of open-endedness because it, it comes to the fact that you, you will never really know the impact that your life and your decisions in life are going to have on the world around you. You can't know. So it would almost feel like a cheat if they got some knowledge of the future and were told what it was that they had achieved. They, they can't know because none of us can know. We can imagine the effect that our actions are having, but we can never really know that what we've imagined is true. And, and to me, it hits home when Hallie calls her mum um, for the first time in the best part of a year. And she's imagined this encounter, and we see her imagining this encounter, this phone call earlier in the book where you know she she imagines her mum being sort of panicked and angry and happy and all all these things but in reality when she does phone her her mum didn't realize that she wasn't at university <laughs> they literally thought that she had gone back to university for her last year mm. and just hadn't bothered coming home at christmas and and this uh, this huge effect that she had thought that her running away was going to have on her family, the precautions she took, changing her bank account, changing her phone, and none of it mattered because they didn't even really notice that she was gone, which it, it, on some level tells you all about her relationship with them and that a lot of the things she worried about was, was true, that they weren't really paying that much care and attention to her, but also that she had a completely wrong idea of the, the effects that her action of running away would actually have on other people because you can't know how other people are going to react. And it, it's like a, a miniature version of her never really knowing what the ultimate outcome will be of them having saved this politician's life in the future. So we asked our listeners to write in with any thoughts they had on Paris Adrift, if they were reading along with us during March. And we have a lovely piece by uh, author Chris Butler, who got in touch. And this is what he said. I very much like the sections of the novel set in contemporary Paris. The staff at Millie's Bar are engaging and the portrayal of their working life seems completely authentic. The time travel episodes vary in tone from light comedy back in 1875 to dark menace in the future. For me, the darker tone is more successful, with Hallie drawn into a kind of addiction to time travel and to the anomaly. And there was a real sense of suspense as Hallie tries to alter the course of history. Hallie is the main point of view character through most of the book, but there is a notable shift with a couple of chapters told from Leon's perspective. I'm not sure that, that was entirely necessary, but it does give us some insight into Leon's character that we wouldn't otherwise have. Overall, I enjoyed the book very much. It's quirky, and it's like an art house version of a blockbuster novel, often more concerned with the difficulty of getting through a night shift at Millie's Bar than it is with the problem of saving the world. If you like the sound of that, then this is definitely the book for you. So what did you make of chapters that that came in from Leon's perspective quite late on in the story so I think they 
it was important that they were included. Um, I think it was it was interesting that that was the only way that I think you could flesh out some of Leon's perspective on things. A lot of the other characters are, uh, actually, like Chris says, I think observed through interactions directly with uh, with Hallie. So it is a bit odd that he has his own sort of chapters to kind of look at his thought processes. But I think it does work. I think it introduces especially the idea of the, well, what you were talking about before, the idea of thinking you've changed the course of history in one way, but realising there's something else that's that's happened. I think you need to have that shift. And you have to have Leon finding that out as the person who is um, introduced at the beginning as, as somebody who is probably the most aware of how all the events are going to affect the timeline in some way. Um, I think the only other thing I did find about Leon was there is a lot of, I think, emotional impact from what happens to his character at the end. And I'm actually quite surprised that you get so much out of it, given that I think the interactions between him and Hallie in particular are actually quite sporadic. So it's nice that you get a lot out of it at the end, even though I think maybe... I would have expected more of more to have been made of their relationship throughout the story. It it does have that that kind of bittersweet nature to it of not a holiday romance, but almost a kind of a, a gap year temporary romance where you know both of them must have known all along that it was never really going to work out, and at some point you have to part and. You know, even in the age of social media, you probably never find out whatever happened to the other person. You lose touch with them. Um, you carry on with your life. They carry on with theirs. And it's just that part of your life that existed in the past and is a memory. So I like the fact that it didn't end with some happy ever after of the two of them, you know, shacking up and deciding that they're going to live in Paris in whatever year it is. Mm. It wouldn't have felt like a like like a, a real depiction of that part of someone's life if it had tried to find a happy ending for them. So that's a good place to stop, I think. Uh, that was our Cakes and Our Book Club episode, all about the excellent Paris Adrift by E.J. Swift. Yes, and you may have already seen us tweet out what we're going to be reading in April, but it's going to be Origami by Rachel Armstrong. So if you want to read along with us in April, you can uh, grab a copy of that and do send us in any thoughts that you have about the book and we might include them in the podcast in a month's time. Yeah, all that's left to say is we love hearing your feedback and thoughts on what we do. So you can just search for our Mothership podcast, Time for Cakes and Ale, on Facebook, on Twitter and also at our website, which is timeforcakesandale.com. Uh, you can let us know what you think of our episodes, of the books we're covering. And of course, with our other podcasts, you can find out about our other interests in the world of Twin Peaks in Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee and also The Prisoner in the world of the Tally Ho. So do get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. And until next time, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.